the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I'd think there for a moment. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Today we're going to talk with Marion Jordan Ellis. She's the author of Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. We'll see what the scriptures have to say about the challenges Jesus himself told his disciples we would face. That's coming up later this hour. Also, we're in, a, in the five o'clock hour. We're going to uh, review a, a column that was written by Gene Twenge in The Atlantic, uh, asking whether or not smartphones have destroyed a generation. We'll also share a response from Max Bloom that says, yes, yeah, smartphones are destroying my generation. So we'll get into that in the five o'clock hour as well. Well, as you know, President Trump did a quick tour on Tuesday to uh, uh, it's a tour of border security infrastructure in Arizona. His uh, top Homeland Security aides stepped up pressure on Congress to approve money for new fencing and additional agents, saying they're going to keep America safe and prevent illegal immigrants from making the dangerous journey in the first place. Well, it was a, an interesting series of speeches, some of which seem to um, run counter to the tone of previous speeches, but it should not have been surprising, given the fact that this is uh, fairly consistent with what we've seen thus far. But citing early success and cutting the flow of illegal immigrants, top officials said that they still need uh, more fencing to help funnel the illegal traffic, promise to keep pressing enforcement inside the United States to convince people they're likely to be deported, even if they do reach the border. The president in Yuma, he uh, came in route uh, to Phoenix, uh, where he had a highly anticipated uh, campaign-style rally. The rally is his first since, the, since rather, the Charlottesville-Virginia clashes and the first since the president said he was considering pardoning former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. He did not, but that's still on the table, we understand. The Phoenix location had left Arpaio backers uh, hoping for news yesterday, but the White House said that was not going to happen. Instead, the trip was intended to try to regain footing after a rough week that saw the president take fierce criticism from both Republicans and Democrats over his handling of Charlottesville and firing his chief strategist, Steve Bannon. Well, turning to immigration made sense for the administration. They'd already notched some gains in that area. Apprehensions of illegal immigrants on uh, on the border, the rough yardstick for overall illegal flow, are down dramatically across the Southwest, while deportations from the interior of the United States are up 32%. Those gains uh, were achieved by policy changes, but officials said that they uh, uh, they are improving uh, as well and need to be improved. It will take more resources, including another round of wall building, the agent said. Thomas Holman, who's the acting director of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, said the president's message is we need a strong border and we need strong interior enforcement. What he's done so far has worked, so we need the funding to make uh, make it permanent. We need funding to build a wall. Well, congressional Democrats and even some Republicans are resisting those efforts, with a wall serving as a major dividing line outside 
side of Congress, activists have also vowed resistance. But officials pointed to Yuma as proof of success for a wall. Little more than a decade ago, the Border Patrol's uh, Yuma sector nabbed 380 immigrants coming into the country illegally on an average day. This April, the Border Patrol nabbed just 244 the entire month, an average of eight per day. The numbers have risen since, but are still fewer than 30 a day. Measured against the entire border, the Yuma sector accounted for 12 percent of all illegal entrants based on apprehension numbers in 2005. Now that's fallen to about 3 percent. Homeland Security officials credited massive uh, the, the border wall or rather uh, a massive border wall building campaign under the previous administration, President George W. Bush, which took uh, Yuma sector from five miles of fencing and vehicle barriers to 63 miles today. Well, officials also said more agents to patrol the barrier, more technology to help them detect breaches and stiffer prosecutions for those caught sneaking in, uh, rounded out the efforts that have made uh, such a difference there. Officials said everyone is safer from the U.S. communities to the agents themselves to the immigrants who weren't making the journey uh, anymore since the reward of gaining a foothold in the United States is less likely. That's forced would-be migrants to reevaluate their risk-reward calculus. Well, the administration said that uh, their goal, particularly when it comes to the unaccompanied alien um, uh, children or families traveling together, usually mothers and their children, who are leaving Central America, believing they can make uh, make it to the United States. U.S. authorities say that the risk of rape along the journey was so prevalent that women and girls would begin taking birth control ahead of time, at least to try to prevent pregnancy. Long walks through dangerous jungles, repeated demands for additional money, threats and beatings are also common, they say. Well, unaccompanied minors, um, uh, they're trying to dissuade, and especially when it comes to them and their family units, dissuade them from making that dangerous journey north, said one Homeland Security official. Also fueling the immigration debate uh, on Tuesday was a report by McClatchy News Service that said the White House is looking to strike a deal that would offer legal status for young adult uh, illegal immigrant dreamers in exchange for border wall fencing. Both sides of the immigration debate rejected that kind of deal. Those who favor a crackdown on illegal immigration said they didn't want the see Dreamers offered permanent legal status, while immigrant rights groups said that it was unconscionable to bargain with the lives of Dreamers. But bargain they just might in the days ahead, and we certainly will cover the story as it develops. Well, Trump, of course, blistered the media in his Phoenix rally. It was a campaign-style rally, and that was this, the style of it. President Trump opened his speech to supporters in Phoenix by slamming the media again for its coverage of his uh, reaction to the Charlottesville protest and said his followers are united in love for others. Now, bringing it up just uh, raised an issue that was starting to die down, so I'm not sure what the benefit was. But he targeted CNN specifically. CNN is fighting back with multiple headlines pointing to uh, this story, questioning Trump's fitness for office. So the battle, the back and forth continues. Jonah Goldberg points out that the hope that uh, impeachment is around the corner is an unspoken assumption in much of the media coverage. And Dennis Prager points out that to understand America's crisis today, one must first understand what has happened to two institutions the university and the news media. They do not regard their mission as educating and informing, but indoctrinating. Twitter says this, a Trump tweet uh, shortly after his speech. Not only does the media give a platform to hate groups, but the media turns a blind eye to the gang violence on our streets. And finally, USA Today reported that after the speech, police were attacked, uh, resulting in uh, the release of tear gas. So, again, loving one another is uh, uh, we've fallen short of, of that goal.
Well, a group of anti-Trump demonstrators used gas canisters, rocks, bottles to assault uh, police on Tuesday night. They created havoc at what officials said was mostly a peaceful protest in Phoenix. Video captured by the local reporter shows a smoking object being thrown at police while hundreds of officers attempted to keep order at a rally after the president's speech at the Phoenix Convention Center had ended. A very small number of individuals chose criminal conduct. The Phoenix Police Chief Jerry Williams told reporters the individuals broke down fencing uh, and at one point um, dispersed gas into and at police officers. They had their own gas that uh, they threw at uh, police, not our gas. So if you saw smoke, it wasn't the police. It was apparently the protesters. The violence resembled the mayhem perpetrated uh, by Antifa groups, militant far left anti-fascist groups that have protested Trump at other venues. Local Phoenix officers dressed in riot gear finally had to disperse pepper balls and tear gas at the crowds. Uh, Officers first directed pepper spray at individual protesters before they deployed a larger scale gas. Uh, According to Williams, officers were forced then uh, at that time to really protect themselves, to protect the community, to protect property, and they did so successfully and professionally. Four people were arrested in connection with the protest. Two of those were charged with aggravated assault on a police officer. A reporter with the Arizona Republic captured video of a lit object being thrown thrown toward police officers from a crowd of people gathered in downtown Phoenix. The video shows the object begins smoking after striking uh, one of the police officers. And again, uh, no new story in that. 16 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump's comprehensive new strategy to achieve a lasting peace in Afghanistan was enthusiastically received by the government of uh, Afghan President Ashraf Ghani, uh, which praised the increasing number of U.S. troops in the country as uh, another way to strengthen the weakened Afghan forces. So favorable there. His speech also created pressure on the Pakistani government, which the U.S. has long suspected of sponsoring terrorism in Afghanistan. Well, Pakistan security officials have accused Trump of shifting the blame for failures in the war against the Taliban and other militant groups fighting in that war-torn uh, area. Well, addressing a new plan for the 16-year-old conflict in Afghanistan on Monday night, he asked India, Pakistan's um, arch-rival, uh, to help the U.S. Econo- economically rather in Afghanistan, especially in the area of economic assistance and development. Uh, We have been paying uh, uh, Pakistan billions and billions of dollars at the same time they are housing the very terrorists that we are fighting, he said uh, in his speech on Monday. The strategy is made in accordance with realities on the ground. Uh, says a, a, a spokesman for the Afghan president. This is the first time the U.S. government is coming with a very clear-cut message to Pakistan to either stop what you're doing or face the negative consequence. Uh, while acknowledging Washington's relationship with Pakistan as an ally, Trump did say we can no longer be silent about Pakistan's safe haven for terrorist organizations, the Taliban and other groups that pose a threat to the region and beyond. This is going to be a tough one in Pakistan. The war was uh, finally come to um, Pakistan in Afghanistan. My concern is for adventurism on both sides, but particularly how the deep state will now go after further silencing voices in the country that criticizes the policy of supporting selected military groups. That was a quote from Pakistan's um, 
a well-known defense analyst. Now, what Trump said about Pakistan may have been tough, but it was certainly not new. We've heard U.S. leaders many times pledge to get Pakistan to change its ways. Michael Klugman uh, from the Woodrow Wilson uh, Center says, and to this point, they haven't seceded. We'll see if it's different this time around. Uh, Such are the immutability of Pakistan's strategic interests, which entail maintaining ties to groups like the Taliban because they keep India at bay in Afghanistan. Uh, Then I don't expect Trump's strategy, regardless of what it comes up with, uh, to get Pakistan to alter its policy, he went on to say. Well, the Afghan ambassador to the United States called the speech a shift away from talking about timetables and numbers to letting conditions on the ground determine military strategy. He said the new strategy was a break with micromanagement from Washington. Well, the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan, David Hale, uh, paid uh, a courtesy call on uh, Pakistan's foreign minister uh, on Tuesday afternoon. Hale briefed the foreign minister about Trump's latest policy review on South Asia and Afghanistan. Hale also reportedly uh, said U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson looked toward to looked forward rather to meeting him in the next few days uh, to have an in-depth discussion about the two countries' relationship as well as the new U.S. policy. Again, not the first time it was mentioned. Whether or not it's implemented and successful remains to be seen. Well, President Trump signed what he called an historic bill for veterans uh, on stage during the American Legion National Convention in Nevada today. No longer will veterans be kept waiting for years to get an answer to their appeals, Trump said, again, speaking from Reno, Nevada. They will receive timely updates and they will get uh, decisions much more quickly in a fraction of the time. Well, the legislation signed by the president, the Veterans Appeals Improvement and Modernization Act, streamlines the process of veterans appealing claims about disability benefits. More than 470,000 veterans are in limbo as they wait for a decision on their benefits, a White House official says. Trump noted uh, during the speech that the American Legion pressed so hard for that legislation, he said, they have a lot of power, a, a lot of power, and they use it well, end quote. Well, during his speech, the president also referenced his decision announced earlier this week to send more troops to Afghanistan, a reversal of his campaign promise uh, to withdraw troops that follows months of deliberations with advisors. We will pursue an honorable and enduring outcome in Afghanistan worthy of the tremendous sacrifice our troops have already made, the president said once again. We will give our men and women in uniform the tools they need and the trust they have earned to fight and win. Well, Trump argued tremendous um, progress has been made in the fight against terrorism, but he expressed concern and vowed to take action over how terrorist groups like ISIS use the Internet for recruitment. We're going to start working very hard on the Internet, Trump said, because uh, they're using the Internet at a level that they should not be allowed to use the Internet. I'm quoting. They're recruiting from the Internet and we are going to work under my administration very hard so that doesn't happen in quote. Well, ahead of the speech, the White House said about 10,000 veterans and members of the American Legion uh, would be in attendance. Leaders from the veterans of foreign wars, Vietnam veterans of America, disabled American veterans, paralyzed veterans of America and uh, AMVETS were also uh, there for that event. Well, the U.S. Navy has dismissed the commander of its seventh fleet. Uh, dismissed him from duty after the fleet suffered its second deadly mishap in less than three months. The Navy cited a loss of confidence in Vice Admiral Joseph uh, Acoin's ability to command. 
Uh, news that the decision was imminent was first reported by the Wall Street Journal. The Seventh Fleet has been involved in three collisions since January, the last two of which have resulted in the deaths of 17 sailors. In the latest mishap, the USS John S. McCain collided with an oil tanker before dawn on Monday near Singapore. Ten sailors were reported missing, but officials confirmed Tuesday that Navy divers had found the remains of some sailors in the flooded department. Uh, rather compartment. In June, seven soldiers died in the USS Fitzgerald and a container ship collided in the waters off Japan. In January, the U.S. Antietam guided missile cruiser ran aground near Yokosuka uh, base, the home port of the Seventh Fleet. And in May, another cruiser, the USS Lake Champlain from the U.S. Navy's Third Fleet, had a minor collision with a South Korean fishing boat. U.S. Pacific Fleet Commander Admiral Scott Swift told news uh, speaking at a news conference rather yesterday, said that each of the incidents was unique, but added that they cannot be viewed in isolation. Well, Swift added the uh, Navy would conduct an investigation to find out if there is a common cause. And if uh, if so, how do we solve that? Navy Admiral John Richardson, the chief of naval operations, uh, ordered the pause of the Seventh Fleet operations for the next few days to allow commanders to get together with leaders, sailors and command Uh, officers and identify any immediate steps that need to be taken to ensure safety and, of course, to avoid any similar uh, mishaps. A uh, broader U.S. Navy review will will look at the 7th Fleet's performance, including personnel, navigation capabilities, maintenance, equipment, surface warfare training, munitions, certifications, and how sailors move through their careers. Richardson said the uh, review will be conducted with the help of the Navy's Office of Inspector General, the Safety Center, and private companies that make equipment used by the sailors. But again, the um, 7th Fleet commander uh, has been uh, released. Now, coming up, we're going to talk with Marion Jordan Ellis. She typically writes uh, for women's, um, uh, or I should say women's books and blog, but she has written a book that apl- applies to us all, Stand, R- Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. She'll be joining us in our next segment. Well, House Speaker Paul Ryan visited Intel today and said Republicans in his chamber, the Senate and the White House, need to get on the same page if they're going to deliver a massive tax overhaul that they and Intel want. He was joined by U.S. Representative Greg Walden and said that he'd like Congress to pass legislation slashing tax rates for businesses and individuals, a move he said he believes would jumpstart economic growth and make American business more competitive. This year, Ryan said, for a timeline, but details are scant. Rejecting the president's comment on Tuesday that a government shutdown may be preferable if funding for a new border wall with Mexico is not secured, Ryan said a government shutdown isn't the right move. On taxes, uh, Ryan and Intel appear to be in sync. Corporate tax cuts uh, have long been among Intel's top policy goals, one of the nation's largest manufacturers. The firm wants to reduce the cost of its domestic operations. At the visit uh, today uh, to Intel's Oregon facility, the company's largest anywhere, uh, Speaker Ryan said executives told him they would save $2 billion annually by moving factories overseas. Uh, that won't happen. Intel just invested several billion dollars to build the world's most advanced computer chip factory here and set uh, plans in February to open a similar facility in Arizona within five years. But Ryan said lower corporate tax rates coupled with a simpler tax code and fewer deductions would make the U.S. economy more robust, saying that what we're trying to achieve here is to get the American economy primed for the 21st century to be competitive. Um, Ryan told a small gathering of Intel employees following demonstrations of the company's microchips being used in drones and an automated 
car. Meanwhile, we learned that Oregon's uh, unexpectedly strong economy has officially triggered the state's unique kicker tax rebate. Uh, state economists uh, told lawmakers today that means the state will return $464 million in personal income taxes to Oregonians. Well, sort of, according to the forecast. State economist Mike McMullen, uh, he said a surge in tax payments near the end of the legislative session ensured the rebate. As we entered the last three to four weeks of the biennium, we really did see a surge in personal income taxes and corporate tax collections. Uh, given how strong the end of the year finished, it put us squarely into kicker territory. Now, for most Oregonians, the windfall will be modest. Somewhere uh, with income between thirty to $35,000 a year can expect a, uh, at around $89, according to the state. Oregon's kicker provision takes effect when the state collects 2% more revenue than expected. If this happens, the state returns all of the extra money, even if it's more than 2%, to taxpayers in the form of credit on their upcoming income tax uh, taxes in 2018. Now, some of you might remember we used to receive checks. It's cheaper to just uh, roll it over as a tax uh, credit, if you will. Uh, it also applies to corporate taxes, which exceeded expectations. But under changes voters approved in 2012, the state will send the additional $111 million in corporate tax revenue to K-12 through schools, not back to businesses. Well, despite the rebate, the forecast still contained good news for the state budget. $87 million in additional general fund revenue expected in the current biennium. Economists, they're also downgraded the the expected hit to Oregon's video lottery revenues from a new casino opened up in Cowlitz by the Cowlitz Indian Tribe in Washington. The state's two-year general fund budget is around $21 billion. McMullen said, in general, the economic and revenue outlook for Oregon is pretty stable compared to three months ago. Still, McMullen said the state's economy is showing some pullback and some slowdown in recent months. Oregon has been riding a very long recovery after the state's economy was pummeled by the last recession. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Marion Jordan Ellis. Her book, Simply Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest points out that every Christian has experienced how difficult it can be to stay strong in your faith when you're faced with personal trials or difficult the difficulties of this world. Well, speaker, author, and founder of Redeemed Girl Ministries, Marion jo- Jordan Ellis, shares how Christians can stand firm in their faith in her latest book, Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. We are called in Scripture to stand, and in the book she answers questions like, how do we hold uh, fast to truth in an age of relativity and false teaching? How do Christian leaders share the gospel in a culture that wants us to be silent? And how do we hold fast in the midst of heartbreak, temptation, and persecution? Well, we're going to talk about all of that. Marion Jordan Ellis holds a master's degree from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, is the founder of Redeemed Girl Ministries. She's the author of Sex and the City, Uncovered, um, Wilderness Skills for Women, the List, Radiant, and The Girlfriend Guide. Uh, she, a guidebook rather. Marion is a sought-after speaker and has shared her testimony at over 50 college campuses nationwide through her Girls' Night Out event and her weekly Bible study podcast reaches thousands of young women as well. Again, she joins us today to talk about her latest book, Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. 
you begin your introduction uh, by drawing our attention to Jesus, who is huddled with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, anticipating his uh, crucifixion. And he is informing this ragtag team of followers what they should expect from the enemy. Um, take us um, to that scene and help set the scene for us as we consider the challenges we face today and what Jesus has already said about them. Yes, I, I love that scene in Scripture because Jesus prepared his disciples for tough times. And I, as I say in the book, he didn't sugarcoat it. And so often we get blindsided when things don't go as we planned or we go through a heartbreak or an unmet desire or, or in the culture we're living in today, the persecution or darkness, we get blindsided by those. But if we look at Scripture, Jesus told the disciples and he tells us, that before the return of Christ, before his return, that it's, uh, the darkness will increase. And it's almost like you're watching your team play um, a championship game, and you're looking at the scoreboard, and it's, it's two minutes left in the game, and your team is behind by 10 points, and you just have this defeated feeling. And Jesus says, do not have that defeated feeling, because keep hope alive, because in the, win- in the end, Jesus wins. And he just wants us to remember, if we stand firm through all this, and we win life. And that's what's found in Luke chapter 21. So he's given his disciples actually encouragement and hope that despite what their eyes might see, that he will bring the ultimate victory. Now, it's interesting because motivational speakers would probably tell you, you don't start with with the the challenge that's ahead. Uh, But Jesus was very straightforward and honest with the disciples assembled around him at that time, as he is for us today. So we probably shouldn't be surprised. And yet, when the challenges become personal, we do find uh, that we are oftentimes surprised and unprepared. I know I sure was in my own life, and that's one of the reasons I I wrote this book is because when I went through some great disappointments, when my faith was tested, when I... And my husband and I went against some challenges where we couldn't change uh, the situation around us. Over and over, I went back to God's Word, and He kept repeating this word, stand and see, stand and see. And actually, that word stand is 521 times in the Bible. And I began to see it in all of these verses and all of these scenarios where God's people were against these incredible odds. But in the midst of that, when they stood firm in their faith, God overcame the impossible situation. He brought victory. He delivered them. But their call in the midst of those moments was to stand and see God do it. Mm. Now, you ask the question, why stand? It's sort of a, a peculiar word for Jesus to give his disciples. Talk a bit about that word and, and this call for us to stand being a call to faith. You know, if you think about uh, fear responses, and a lot of times what we're dealing with in these situations is fear. And when you're afraid, your natural instinct is to run, or your natural instinct is to hide. But Jesus told his disciples the opposite. He said to stand firm. And what that is, is standing is actually the physical posture of our faith. We might intellectually believe something, but when we stand firm in faith, in hope, in confidence in God, looking forward with a hopeful expectation to the future that God is going to do something good, that Jesus wins, and that is reflected in our posture, in our uh, our posture in the spiritual realm. Um, back to my, I'm sorry, back to my illustration earlier where I was talking about the watching a sporting uh, event. 
you know, when your team is down, you can see in the posture, like how you're watching it, your shoulders are slumped over, you feel defeated. But if you have the mindset of victory, you're standing tall, you're expectant, you're, you're waiting for that victory. And so I think that's why Jesus gives us that word, because it reflects what our heart believes. Mm. You write that uh, Jesus promises that our darkest days are not our destiny, the enemy's fiercest attacks are not our identity, and the evil of this present world is not our future reality. God's Word is filled with specific promises to those who stand. What are some of the things we might expect if we are faithful and to do what He's called us to do in standing? You know, it's so powerful. If you look throughout the New Testament, I use many examples from the Old Testament of people who were called to stand. But then when you take it into the New Testament, it becomes this prescription to us in the midst of darkness. It's really this application to us as believers. If you look at the whole armor of God, as Paul goes through each of those pieces, it's talking about stand, stand, stand with the helmet of salvation, with the shield of faith, stand with this. And so what it becomes then is how we live out our faith in the midst of trials, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of persecution. And what's so cool is as you get to Revelation and you see the culmination of history, you see the culmination of all of this battle that believers have gone through, you see us standing before the throne of God, and God calls us this word. He said, those are the overcomers. Well, what's interesting in the Greek, that same word for overcomers is the word that means to stand. It's the ones who kept standing. And that just, when I realized that, that just gave me such an encouragement, because what Jesus was saying to the disciples when they were huddled there in Jerusalem, and he was preparing them for the darkness that would come, he's saying, when you keep the faith and you keep standing, you're going to be an overcomer, and you're going to win life, and you're going to have eternity in heaven with me, and there's going to be a glorious reward awaiting for you. And he gives us this picture of our future hope. Mm. Well, let's talk about that word hope. It's a beautiful word. It's desperately needed for us today, as it's been for every generation of believers. Uh, talk about the role that hope plays as we resolve to uh, to be obedient and stand. You know, the word hope means to have a confident expectation. It's how we look forward to the future. Do we look forward believing that um, that that evil is going to win, that darkness is going to prevail, or do we look forward to the future knowing that there is a sovereign God who is working all things for good, who is right now orchestrating events to bring about His ultimate plan. And so how we look at the future is all dependent on whether we have the hope of Christ in our hearts. And so really standing is all about that posture of hope. Um, my The biggest story I use in the Bible, uh, in this book, is Moses at the Red Sea. You know, God has called Moses to bring his people out of captivity in Egypt and take them into the promised land, and so their hope is for the promised land. But they get to this point at the Red Sea where they have Pharaoh's army on their back. They have this impossible situation with the Red Sea in front of them, and they're surrounded by mountains. And in that moment, the people begin to lose hope. They freak out. They go into depression. They scream in fear. But Moses, instead, he looks forward and he says, stand firm and see the deliverance of God. See, he hoped in that moment that God was going to keep his word. God was going to take them out of slavery and take them into the promise because God had promised that. And although Moses had no idea 
how God would deliver and how God would provide. He he believed him in that moment and he hoped. And then God did that miracle that we all know of parting the Red Sea and bringing that about. But it was hoping in God in that moment that enabled Moses to stand in that moment. We're going to take a quick break, but we will return in just a few moments. We are talking with Marion Jordan Ellis. The book we're talking about is Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. And don't we need to know how to do just that? Uh, Liz Curtis Higgs, best-selling author, said this, Marion Jordan Ellis minds the scriptures to show us why and how we can stand no matter what challenges we're facing. This might be the book for you. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Marion Jordan Ellis. Her book is titled Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation, and Persecution. You make the point that Jesus uh, prepared us uh, for these uh, difficult times and the promised victory that is uh, is coming. But the question before us today is, will we stand? And you offer the uh, uh, the example in, from Scripture of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I do. It's one of my actually favorite stories in the Bible because those those three men were living in a pressure uh, in a culture trying to conform them, and the pressure was so intense. And yet, in the midst of this call to bow down to the God of the age and to conform to culture, they chose to stand despite the consequences. In the book, you make the point that um, this is not a book about external hot-button issues, but it's about the internal resolve of the committed Christian to remain faithful to God until the end. Knowing the challenges that are ahead, Jesus himself outlined them so we shouldn't be surprised. And you divide the book up into different sections that help us walk through um, what we need to do in order to be prepared. And you begin with the, uh, the the section on the posture of faith. And you take us back to Exodus and, and look at the example of Moses and how we are to stand and see God's deliverance. Tell us a little bit about the posture of faith. Yeah, the posture of our faith is really where uh, faith stops being just an intellectual thing, or it stops being something that happens on Sunday morning. And it's what uh, really I call in the gut of your belly, where you know that you know you know, and you have this confidence in who God is and His expectation. And it's reflected in this, I'm standing and firm in my belief, in my confidence, and I'm really planting my feet in what God has promised. And that that picture we see is the one I referred to earlier of Moses planting mm-hmm. his feet at the Red Sea and believing that God was going to deliver. So that is the posture of our faith. And we have to start there because, um, you know, the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's where our, our journey with God begins is that journey of faith. You then move on to um, the second section of your book on the planted feet. It it's matters that we stand, but it also matters where we are standing. Uh, talk about firmly uh, standing firmly on the rock, the solid rock, Christ Jesus. You know, what I found is when many people go through trials, um, the storms of life hit, and when they begin to crumble, what you will find, and I found this in myself, that at some point 
there is a faulty um, understanding of the gospel and who God is. And, you know, A.W. Tozer said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so in this section of the book, I go back to Christ's words about building our lives on Him, and He calls Himself the rock. You know, and he, he also says, whoever puts his words into practice. And I go back to those fundamentals of what does it mean to plant our feet on Jesus Christ? What does it mean to plant our feet on his word? Because we live in a culture of such rel- uh, relativity where if you believe this, that's fine, or that's good for you. But God's truth is eternal, and it's timeless, and it's unchanging. And that is the only thing, his word, that will keep us standing until the end and So we have to examine our lives, really, if we're going to stand firm to the end and find out, am I really planting my feet on the unchanging gospel and person of Jesus? Am I living according to His Word? Because if not, Jesus said the person who's not building their lives on the solid rock, they are going to, when the storms come, they're going to topple and they're going to, they're they're on sinking sand and they're not going to stand firm. Mm. You then move on to spiritual warfare, and perhaps that bears some defining for listeners who aren't familiar with that that term, it sounds like we are in a battle with our neighbors. Uh, but you you talk about the position of victory and the necessity of spiritual warfare, which sometimes causes us to to shrink back the the notion of it. Yes, and you know, I I just want to say that um, as Christians, this world for us is more of a battleground than it is a playground. And I don't want to be, you know, a doomsdayer, and I don't want to give the enemy more credit than he's due. But the reality is we do live in a war zone. And the book of Ephesians says our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. So I look at so many marriages falling apart. I look at people who are in such relational drama. I see people who are, in in my own life, issues I face. And so often we think the problem is with the other person, or we think the problem is um, with that group of people. Really, we're dealing with spiritual issues in a spiritual war, and so we have to be equipped, and God's Word and the Holy Spirit equips us to be victorious, because Jesus has already won that victory. And so what we're learning in the book, Stand, is how to stand in that victory that Christ has already won for us. One of the ways I think we uh, endure that it, it emboldens and strengthens our obedience and our resolve to be faithful is to understand the promise to overcomers. And you end the book, the, the last uh, section of the book, uh, focusing on the promise to overcomers, because if we lose sight of that, we, we may find that our resolve to stand is weakened. Absolutely. You know, I, I share a little bit about my personality. I'm um, someone who I really love an incentive. So you, um, you're you're in Portland. You guys love your coffee. Well, uh, you know, Starbucks has their reward system. You go to Starbucks and you go so many times, they give you number of stars and points, and you get free coffee. Your favorite airline. The more you fly with them, the more points you get, and in the end, you get free stuff. Well. I look at the Bible, and I see the original reward system. God said how we live our lives as believers on earth. You know, that's not what earns our salvation. But when we stand before God face-to-face one day in eternity, how we live our lives, we will be rewarded. And when Jesus said, if you stand firm, then you will win life, there is a payoff. There is an eternal destiny awaiting us because of how we live today. And so 
Yes, we will face spiritual warfare. Yes, we're going to face persecution. Yes, we're going to face temptation. But in the midst of those, if we hold fast to our joy and to our love for God, and we just say in our hearts, you know what, Jesus, you are better, and we keep standing in Him, you know what, one day God says, I'm going to reward that. I'm going to reward your faithfulness. I'm going to reward that you didn't back down. I'm going to reward that you didn't turn away. I'm going to reward the fact that when you were being mocked because of my name, you did not, um, you know, shy away from who I am. And so to me, it's casting our eyes to eternity and remembering God has promised this and he is faithful. I mentioned earlier that much of your ministry and your other books and the podcast are focused on women. Uh, this book's and um, it seems to me it has a much broader appeal. To which audience are you um, uh, writing with regard to our call to stand? Is it for both male and female readers? You know, I did intentionally write it to male and female audience because I, I believe it's a book for the church at large. I believe it's a message that the church as a whole, whatever denomination, whatever age, needs to hear. And when I was first really studying this and researching this. Um, my Bible study class that I teach are men and women ages, you know, 20 to 80. And so it really, really was um, researched with that type of group in mind. And what I'm seeing and hearing feedback, you know, uh, from, you know, men in their 70s and women in their 20s and everything in between is that this word and this call is relevant uh, to everyone in the church. Well, I would agree. I wanted to make mention of that because I didn't want anyone to decide, well, it's probably not a book for me because I I don't fall in that category. So I would absolutely agree. Now, before we um, end our conversation, can you tell us really quickly about your ministry, um, uh, Redeemed Girl? Yes. You know, the word redeemed means to buy something back and restore it to its original intent. And really, that is my testimony. Jesus uh, rescued me at the age of 25 from a life of just brokenness and sin and shame, and He redeemed me and transformed my life. And so now, um, as a ministry, what we do is we provide events and resources for women uh, really to bring about that, you know, ultimate transformation where it's not just... um, you know, having a a fun little coffee shop Bible study, but they really are being transformed from glory to glory as God intended and experiencing the real life and fruit. And so we really aim and everything we do is to bring women to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and that their lives would be uh, made new and whole as a result of that. Well, I thank you so much for your ministry and for the book that we've been talking about, Stand, Rising Up Against Darkness, Temptation and Persecution. It's published by David C. Cook. And thanks for taking the time to be with us today. It's been great to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, Marion Jordan Ellis, author of stand. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. A bit later, we're going to uh, talk about a column that was written in The Atlantic, Gene Twinge is the writer, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? We'll also talk about uh, Max Bloom's response, Smartphones Are Destroying My Generation, he writes. We'll get into that later uh, in this hour. By the way, portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. Well, the firm behind the infamous anti-Trump dossier was working at the same time on behalf of Vladimir Putin-connected family, 
to campaign against a U.S. sanctions law, a key witness in a Senate probe claims, and that Senate probe is ongoing. Bill Browder, who's CEO of Hermitage Capital, first spoke publicly about his uh, allegations against the firm, Fusion GPS, and its uh, co-founder, Glenn Simpson, at a Senate hearing last month. But in a follow-up letter sent this month to the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley, uh, Browder revealed more details about the Russian figures who allegedly were working with Fusion and the timeline of those efforts. Notably, he said the dossier, and you may be familiar with uh, with that, and a separate campaign uh, to repeal um, the uh, Magnitsky, Magnitsky Act sanctions opposed by the uh, Kremlin were undertaken at the same time. The Magnitsky, I can't hardly say that, act uh, was passed in 2012 to punish a handful of Russian officials in the wake of whistleblower uh, a death in prison. Uh, it bars those officials from accessing the U.S. banking system. Yes, Browder answered when asked whether Fusion took money from Russia while working on the dossier, based on the timing of Fusion GPS work on the anti-Magnitsky campaign, uh, as it was undertaken at the same time that the Fusion GPS was also working for an unknown client on the Trump dossier. And of course, that dossier was not flattering to Trump. Um, the White House has drawn attention to Browder's prior claims about Fusion's ties to Russia to undermine collusion claims by asserting Moscow was actually working against him in the 2016 election or the race. Browder is not claiming that Russia paid for the dossier containing salacious allegations against the now U.S. president. He said he uh, uh, did not know who paid Fusion for their work. However, he was blunt in allegations uh, that the dossier was being uh, 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 compiled at the same time the company was doing work for Russia on the anti-sanctions push. And that uh, probe apparently is continuing. Meanwhile, the federal judge today rejected Texas revised voter identification requirements, handing another court defeat to the state's Republicans over voting rights. Texas has spent years fighting to preserve both the voter ID law, which was among the uh, the strictest in the United States, and voting maps that were both passed by GOP-controlled legislatures in 2011. Earlier this month, a separate federal court earlier found uh, uh, racial gerrymandering in Texas congressional maps and ordered two of the state's 36 voting districts to be partially redrawn before the 2018 elections, which is no small uh, thing. On Wednesday, U.S. District Judge Nev- uh, Nevla or Nelva uh, Gonzalez-Ramos, she rejected a watered-down version of the voter ID law that was signed by Texas Governor Greg Abbott earlier this year. The judge's new rule came three years after she struck down the earlier version of the law. The new version of the law didn't expand the list of acceptable photo identifications, uh, meaning gun licenses remain sufficient proof to vote, but not college student IDs. But the changes um, would allow people who lack the uh, required ID to cast a ballot if they signed an affidavit and brought paperwork that showed the name and address, such as a bank statement or utility bill. The new version was supported by the U.S. Justice Department, which once opposed the law, but has reversed its position since a new administration has come to Washington. Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton called the ruling outrageous and said an appeals court should void it. The U.S. Department of Justice is satisfied that the amended voter ID law has no discriminatory purpose or effect. Safeguarding the integrity of elections in Texas is essential to preserving our democracy, Paxton said in a statement. So they will appeal that earlier decision. Well, as you probably know, Governor Kate Brown signed House Bill 3391 into law. It solidified uh, Oregon's uh, status as the most uh, radically pro-abortion state in America. Abortions 
uh, must now be covered 100% by all insurance policies without a copay or deductible. House Bill 3391 also established a $10 million fund for illegal immigrants' reproductive care, of which 500000 is est- is estimated to be spent covering abortions. In addition, by passing HB 3391, now the law in Oregon, Governor Brown and Oregon Democrats are endangering billions in federal funds because HB 3391 violates the federal Weldon Amendment. Now, there are many things Gail Atterbury is quoted as saying. She's the executive director through September of Oregon Right to Life. Uh, that make Oregon a wonderful state. Unfortunately, House Bill 3391 is not one of them. Governor Brown demonstrated her extreme bias in favor of the abortion rights lobby, disregarding thousands of future Oregonians whose lives have been further endangered by making their elimination 100% expense-free. For policyholders of Providence Health Plan, the only company in Oregon with plans not covering elective abortions, abortion expenses can be fully reimbursed by the Oregon Health Plan. Oregon taxpayers already cover nearly 50 percent of all abortions in the state, whether they like it or not, said uh, Gail Atterbury. By making abortion free, this percentage will inevitably increase. We also expect more late term abortions, which is are currently very expensive as well as risky to perform, all completely covered by either insurance companies or by the Oregon taxpayer. Oregon Right to Life will continue its work in educating Oregonians about abortion, fetal development and other pro-life issues, work that's contributed to Oregon's 40 percent drop in abortions. Oregon Right to Life will also continue working to increase awareness and support of life affirming alternatives to abortion. But there's also a petition that's circulating that would end state funded abortions in the uh, all across the state of Oregon. And you can uh, sign that petition, circulate the petition to get that on the ballot so that Oregonians rather than the legislature. And they made this a matter of emergency, so it cannot be referred to the voters will have an opportunity to decide for themselves if this is a good idea. So. Keep your uh, eyes and ears open for that opportunity. Um, ESPN has been blasted for its political correctness after pulling an announcer from the UVA football game. Now, why would they pull their announcer? Did he say something offensive? Has he uh, misbehaved in some way? Is he a racist? Does he belong to a an organization that is opposed to certain minority groups? Well, we're talking about the ESPN announcer, Robert Lee, apparently Even being Asian doesn't mean people um, won't take you for being a white nationalist. Well, ESPN confirmed last night that it had decided to pull an announcer from calling a University of Virginia football game because his name is Robert Lee. This Robert Lee is, of course, Asian, has nothing whatever to do with Robert E. Lee. But the presumption was people uh, are so incensed in general that they wouldn't be able to make the distinction. We collectively made a decision with Robert to switch games as the tragic events in Charlottesville were unfolding simply because of the coincidence of his name. In that moment, it felt right to all parties, reads the ESPN statement posted at the popular Fox Sports college football blog, Outkick the Coverage. Did I mention that Robert Lee is Asian, wrote disbelieving blogger Travis, who first broke the story, citing multiple OutKick fans inside ESPN. Mr. Lee has been scheduled to call the Cavaliers' September 2nd game in Charlottesville against William & Mary. It's a shame that this is even a topic of conversation, and we regret uh, that who calls play for a football game has become an issue, ESPN, uh, ESPN rather said in its statement. I'm not sure it was an issue before ESPN made it one. Uh, that wasn't the shame Mr. Travis had in his mind uh, ridiculing the sports network, Leviathan for political correctness, calling it MSESPN. Hmm. They were concerned that having an Asian football announcer named Robert Lee would be offensive to some viewers, he wrote. 
The fatal violation in Charlottesville earlier this month grew out of a white nationalist and neo-Nazi march in favor of keeping up a statue of Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general who died in 1870, and happens to share the name with the ESPN announcer, Mr. Travis helpfully explained. Is there anything more pathetic than ESPN believing people would be offended by an Asian guy named Robert Lee sharing a name with Robert E. Lee and calling a football game? Aside from some hysterical photoshops and Internet memes, which would make everyone with a functional brain laugh, Robert E. Lee pulling out all the stops to stay in Charlottesville now. What was the big fear here? Does ESPN really believe people are this dumb or that having an Asian announcer named Robert Lee is too offensive for the average TV viewer to handle? Mr. Travis went on to ask rhetorically. Yes, yes, they do. He answered, well, Mr. Lee will travel to Pittsburgh and call the Pitt Panthers game with Youngstown State and the Cavaliers game will be announced by Dave Weekly. The blog post stated there remains other opportunity for protest at the Cavaliers football game, though. The William and Mary team is the tribe. Wow. What a what a day we live in. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. When we come back, we're going to talk about smartphones and whether or not, as one columnist uh, asked, they're destroying a generation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a prominent psychology researcher, Gene Twenge, uh, has a must-read piece in The Atlantic. Uh, and uh, the gist of what she writes is, and uh, quoting in part from her column, I've been researching generational differences for 25 years, starting when I was a 22-year-old doctoral student in psychology. Typically, the characteristics that come to define a generation appear gradually and along a continuum. Beliefs and behaviors that were already rising simply continue to do so. Millennials, for instance, are a highly individualistic generation, but individualism has been increasing since the baby boomers turned on, tuned in, and dropped out. I had grown accustomed to line graphs of trends that looked like modest hills and valleys. Then I began studying Athena's generation. Around 2012, I noticed abrupt shifts in teen behaviors and emotional states. The gentle slopes of the line graphs became steep mountains and sheer cliffs, and many of the distinctive characteristics of the millennial generation began to disappear. In all my analyses of generational data, some reaching back to the 1930s, I had never seen anything like it. She goes on, again quoting from Jean Twinge. At first, I presumed these might be blips, but the trends persisted across several years and a series of national surveys. The changes weren't just in deep, but uh, in degree rather, but in kind. The biggest difference between the millennials and their predecessors was in how they viewed the world. Teens today differ from millennials, not just in their views, but in how they spend their time. The experiences they have every day are radically different from those of the generation that came, uh, came of age just a few years before them. What happened in 2012 to cause such dramatic shifts in behavior? It was after the Great Recession, which officially lasted from 2007 to 2009 and had a starker effect on millennials trying to find a place in a sputtering economy. But it was exactly the moment when exactly the moment when the uh, pro- the proportion of Americans who owned a smartphone surpassed 50 percent. Well, she follows up with a barrage of statistics and analyses. The charts are jaw-dropping. Smartphones and social media are creating a society where people are radically atomized 
and do not know how to interact with other people, not even their families. She cites psychological research showing that kids uh, in what she terms I-GIN, small I, capital G-E-N, those born between 1995 and 2012 who grew up with smartphones, are far, far more likely to experience depression and malaise. One hopeful statistic from that generation, that they are having less sex and starting it later, uh, may well be due to the fact that they aren't talking as much face-to-face to others. Well, um, the piece uh, is uh, is rather long, so I won't uh, share from all of it, but I, w- I will um, put a link, I think, on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page for you to, uh, to see it. It's, uh, it's a very long and sometimes difficult piece to get through. Um, But she writes, what's at stake isn't just how kids experience adolescence. The constant presence of smartphones is likely to affect them well into adulthood. Among people who suffer an episode of depression, at least half become depressed uh, again later in life. Adolescence is a key time for developing social skills. As teens spend less time with their friends face to face, they have fewer opportunities to practice them. In the next decade, we may see more adults who know just the right emoji for the situation, but not the right facial expression. She focuses on smartphones, but makes it clear that she's talking about screens, period. I'm not a big social media user, but I spend all my working day in front of a screen and have for years. Over the uh, last five years, um, it's increased uh, somewhat. Um, not only uh, are we seeing this true for, for younger people in general, but all across the demographic scale. Um, we've slowly become more withdrawn and introverted, and it's having more of an impact on the younger generation than even my own, which is far from younger. I've noticed this for the past couple of years and figured it was just part of, um, well, working, uh, part of getting older, perhaps. Um, Twinge's piece made uh, all of us who read it think that what's happening is not simply a part of getting older, as uh, many of us had thought, but it's mostly and even entirely driven by the heavy use of the screen. Now, this is something that we all have to deal with, but it's having a greater impact on younger people. Now, here's uh, a passage relevant uh, from a recent book. At the neurological level, the Internet's constant distractions alter the physiological structure of our brain. The brain refashions itself to conform to the nonstop randomness of the Internet experience, which conditions us to crave the repetitive jolts that come with novelty. Nicholas Carr writes, uh, who is the author of The Shallows, he goes on. One thing is very clear. If knowing what we know today about the brain's plasticity, you were to set out to invent a medium that would rewire our mental circuits as quickly and thoroughly as possible, you probably end up designing something that looks and works a lot like the Internet. The result of this is a gradual inability to pay attention to focus, and to think deeply. Study after study has confirmed the common experience many have reported in the Internet age, that using the web makes it definitely easier to find information, but much harder to devote the kind of sustained focus it takes to know things. We can find the answers, but we don't really know much. Compounding the problem, the technological mentality denies that there is anything important to be known, aside from how to make things that help us realize our desires. In ancient Greek um, uh, or uh, craftsmanship versus um, knowledge gained through contemplation and so on. Well, the uh, the writer of, of that concept refers to knowledge that helps you do things while um, others refer to knowledge of how things are so that you know what to do. So knowing how things work is less important today than knowing how to use things so that we can know 
enough to do what we want to do. Well, both contemplation and action are necessary to human flourishing. The Middle Ages prized contemplation, which is why medieval societies, including uh, product of their technological knowledge, was ordered to God. The icon, thought to be a symbolic window into the divine reality, is an, a symbol of that age. Contemplation is alien to the modern mode of, of life. It's difficult to sit for very long uh, in a contemplative mode, particularly if there are no distractions. The iPhone, a luminous portal promising to show us the world, but really a mirror of the world inside our heads, is the icon of our age. Well, under the rule of technology, conditions that make authentic Christian life possible disappear, and most of us have no idea what's happening. Um, the book, uh, again, is uh, one worth reading. Well, a read- reader rather in his 20s who sent a link uh, to the Twinge essay writes of the effects of the smartphone, saying that the evidence is as overwhelming as it is unsurprising. The social effects are likely to be dramatic. How do these kids get a proper education, get married and have kids with such high levels of mental illness and low levels of romantic interest implied in the article? And what does this do to their religiosity? On the other hand, as um, Heidegger, who was found quoting uh, where is the dan- where the danger is rather uh, growing the saving power grows the saving power constant uh, smartphone use and their gnostic disentangling of the body and the mind might drive these kids to repose and spiritual utility that traditional christianity offers that tendency has already been visible in my generation this writer um, points out and if we uh, if we can reach them maybe increased in the next so there, there is the possibility of an upside to uh, all of this. Well, um, there's a novel that was written in 1998, The Elementary Particles, and it's a, it's a rough read because its descriptions uh, are uh, more graphic than one um, would like. But he writes uh, about metaphysical mutations, uh, that is to say, um, radical global transformations in the values to which a majority subscribe are rare in the history of humanity. The rise of Christianity might be cited as an example. Once a metaphysical mutation has arisen, it tends to move inexorably toward logical conclusion. Heedlessly, it sweeps away economic and political systems, aesthetic judgments and social hierarchies. No human agency can halt its progress. Nothing except another metaphysical mutation. It is a fallacy that such metaphysical mutations gain ground only in weakened or declining societies. The Roman Empire was at the height, at the uh, rise of Christianity of its power, supremely organized. It dominated the known world. Its uh, technological and military prowess had no rival. Nevertheless, it had no chance when modern science appeared. And we're talking about the Roman Empire as, as contrasted with the rise of Christianity. When modern science appeared, medieval Christianity was a complete comprehensive system which explained both men and the universe. It was the basis for government, the inspiration for knowledge and art, the arbiter of war as uh, of peace and the power behind the production and distribution of wealth, none of which was sufficient to prevent its downfall. And again, referring to the, uh, the Roman Empire. Well, I won't go into to all of that, but consider this. Uh, one writer suggests that smartphones are our soma saying that this is a civil, civilizational tsunami. If Christians are going to ride out without drowning, so to speak, they're going to have to get very clear in their minds how the metaphysics of Christianity, that is the model of how reality works, is very different from the metaphysics of modernity. modernity and they're going to have to live this difference out, no matter the cost, making friends and allies from people in other religious traditions who, whatever their differences, ardently wish to hold on to what it means to be truly human and not a slave to technology and desire. 
This is the point uh, that was made in the Benedict option, um, that uh, these are not normal times. And the only way Christians are going to survive them with a fair uh, with their faith intact is by taking radical action. Um, uh, Politics, rather, cannot save us because our core problem is not political, but rather metaphysical. And that is a matter of religion. Well, it's an interesting um, and I've referenced several different things, but it's an interesting article in The Atlantic. It appeared uh, it will appear in the September issue, but online it's already available. And uh, again, the the, uh, column is uh, have smartphones destroyed a generation. Uh, Gene Twenge is the writer. National Review had a response. Max Bloom um, writing that uh, millennials go out uh, less, are lonelier than uh, were teenagers and young adults only a decade ago, and making the case that smartphones are destroying his generation. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 34 minutes after 5 o'clock is... Our time. Max Bloom is responding to the uh, rather interesting article that appeared in the uh, um, the Atlantic, written by Gene Twenge on whether or not smartphones are having a significant impact on a generation. And in fact, the headline uh, of the article was whether or not we've already lost the generation to smartphones. Well, Max Bloom. Um, He responds by writing that I've picked up a new habit lately, more of a tick, perhaps. If I'm getting lunch or a coffee with a friend, I usually keep my phone in my pocket. My brother is a few years younger than me, 18, I'm 21, and his social cohort generally finds it acceptable to browse their phones sporadically, even on such occasions. Attitudes among my peers are more mixed, but tend toward the negative. Most of my friends will place their phones face down on the table or keep it in their pockets. Uh, They would likely excuse themselves if they were to respond to a message or check their email. Here's the tick. If one person pulls out their phone, I pull out my phone. I used to do it um, conscientiously if I was expecting a message or following a developing news story, since it is no violation of etiquette to check your phone if others are checking theirs. But now I do it unconsciously, too. Oftentimes, I won't even notice until the screen is displayed in in front of me. I think this started happening about six months ago for me. I've kept an eye out lately, though, and uh, largely confirmed my suspicion. The habit is pretty widespread. Another in... um, uh, I was born in 1996, which puts me either at the the very tail end of the millennials or at the very beginning of the following generation, the most orthodox term, Generation Z, uh, depending on whom you ask. In theory, this places me at the cusp of the cohort that grew up with smartphones, but I was a bit of a latecomer. I didn't have any phone at all until I was in the seventh grade. Wow, he had a phone in seventh grade, which was uncommon, but by no means unique for someone my age in 2008. And for following four years, I was the proud owner of a cheap Nokia flip phone that still used the 10-digit keypad for texting. So if you wanted to say, hey, I'm almost here, you would just press, and I'm not exaggerating, here, a series of numbers. By the 11th grade, when I upgraded to a smartphone, people found this quite amusing. So I'm probably less attached to my phone than most my age. And again, he's 21. I don't have a very uh, don't have very many apps in part because I took the cheapest possible upgrade two years ago. And he goes on. Millennials think um, uh, think pieces such as essays on smartphone culture are enormously popular, but also a little tired. The familiar piece arguing 
that so-and-so social behavior is a sign of the failure of millennials to internalize such and such a social attitude or set of values simply isn't very compelling without some sort of quantitative backing. An old writer often will be insensitive to the cultural attitudes of the matter being addressed. Take all the articles worrying about hookups, for instance, while uh, rates of uh, casual sex are probably lower among younger adults today than they were uh, many uh, for many years in recent in the recent past. A younger writer may be ignorant of the realities of earlier generations. I can never know exactly what it felt like to be 21 in the 90s or 80s, for instance. So it's hard for me to tell whether the foibles of my generation are local or global. But Twinge's article doesn't fall into either trap, in part because it is backed up by a great deal of statistical data and in part because it makes a much broader case uh, than do most pieces of its type. Smartphones, Twinge argues, are precipitating a mental health crisis among the generation that is growing up with them. The data are unmistakable. High schoolers go out with their friends considerably less than they did 10 years ago. They date less. They get less sleep. It is, of course, impossible to be entirely sure that these phenomenon are caused by smartphones, but the the uh, tend li- trend lines are strong circumstantial evidence that something dramatically changed right about when the iPhone started to become popular. The most dramatic shifts all began between 2010 and 2012, right, when iPhones transformed from an expensive curiosity to a social phenomenon at my high school and schools like it across the country. Most troubling of all is the enormous spike in loneliness among teenagers that coincides quite closely with the popularization of the smartphone. From 21% of teenagers saying they frequently felt lonely in 2007 to 31 percent in 2015. It's only a 10 percent jump, but it's significant since we're talking about young people with lots of time on their hands. He goes on, there's been a shortage of pieces warning that phones are making us flaky or distractible. Uh, That Tinder makes dating impossible and that Instagram is preventing us from enjoying the world around us. That young people don't know how to hold a conversation or how to ask a girl out and so on. Depending on the claims, these complaints have more or less merit, but they seem to me more or less a form of griping, a way of particularizing uh, pretty general frustrations. Dating is difficult. A lot of people don't particularly appreciate art museums or landscapes and so on. But he goes on a bit further. I want to be wary of falling into the trap I outlined above, where I complain without any real reference frame that life as a 20-something is worse than it has ever been and everything is going to hell. So there is some there are some caveats. First, even if you spend quite a lot of time on your phone, that still leaves room for a rich and varied life. Even if the most pessimistic appraisal of modern technology is right, it is just like any number of things, an important uh, an impediment to finding meaning and happiness to life. It doesn't make a full and worthwhile life impossible. It just makes it slightly more difficult. Second, insofar as my intuition and arguments are shaped by my own personal experiences, impressions and anecdotes, They should be taken with a grain of salt. My life may be idiosyncratic, as many um, uh, find in social settings that he's grown up in others. And in the absence of quantitative data, none of it should be taken as conclusive. Third, I don't mean to imply that my attitude toward technology is representative of my generations on a whole. But consider this. Texting, Facebook and other social media and personal interactions could be substituted. They could be uh, compliments or they could be neither. That is, it could be the case that spending more time on your smartphone increases the amount of engagement you have in person since it allows you to meet new people and build deeper friendships. Now consult yourself. Think of the feeling you have after a pleasant afternoon or evening spent with people, people you like. 
Imagine the effect it has on your mood, your sense of belonging, your self-worth. And now think of the feeling you have after an afternoon or evening spent texting with people you like or playing games on your phone, or if you are a certain type, scrolling through Twitter. He makes those um, uh, comparisons. He goes on a bit further. Paradoxically, as smartphones have made, made us more alone, I suspect that they have also made us harder to be alone. I would be perfectly intuitive to assume that instant access to an expansive world of communication makes us less lonely. But does that logic really hold up? When I'm alone, I now can be precisely aware of every person who isn't reaching out to me or whom I'm not reaching out to myself. Worse still, I have an instant access to an enormous network of social news from pictures and social gatherings on Facebook and Snapchat of concerts. There's a good chance that I will be aware of whatever enjoyable things my broad circle of acquaintances is up to. I wasn't alive in the 1980s, he writes, but I was alive four years ago when my smartphone usage was far more limited. My recollection is that that being alone was a quantitatively different experience then, with no pressure to check in on anyone. Solitude was less a statement, felt like less a failing. I do think the change is just a result of my growing older. I've spent periods of time alone and without access to a usable phone while traveling, and my impression was that after a brief period of dislocation, the earlier, more relaxed attitude toward solitude returned. I felt lonely occasionally. Loneliness has been around for a long time, after all. But I was released from the suspicion that there was something deeply anomalous about being alone. There is some empirical evidence for this view, and he goes into that. But then he concludes, none of this is to say that smartphones and social media have nothing positive to offer us. The benefits and convenience are enormous, and there is something unambiguous, uh, unambiguously pos- uh, positive and important about being easily able to stay in touch with people who live far away. Nor, of course, can we plausibly return to the days before smartphones. But we will need to confront the reality sooner or later. Phones are addictive. They are not good for us in large doses, and they may be considerable, uh, do considerable damage to the mental health of young Americans. I don't know precisely how to address this, and I despair sometimes at the scope of the problem. But surely my solution will start by establishing social norms about phone usage. I'm far more attached to my phone than I should be. It probably wouldn't be the worst thing for me if my dependence met with some disapproval. It's hard to imagine that there aren't many others who feel the same way, but no such norm can come without a broader admission that our society has a problem. We don't seem to be there yet. Again, two fascinating articles on the impact that uh, smartphones and in general social media with the Atlantic article article really focusing on screens in general and having uh, and how it's having an impact on millennials in particular, but society uh, in general, and that the long term impact of uh, that impediment may be deeper than we expect. It's uh, it's an interesting uh, thing. And I'm going to try to put both of these articles on the Facebook page uh, if I have time before I need to uh, to sign out tonight. But it's a it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition of those two things. Uh, the older generation's view of the impact that the technology is having on the younger generation and someone from the younger generation admitting that, in fact, um, uh it is a problem that they're not quite ready to address, uh, but recognizing that uh, he uh, and others like him spend more time and are, are more attached to their phones than they would uh, otherwise like to be. Anyway, I thought it was uh, rather interesting. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we do, we'll tell you about the uh, D. James Kennedy Ministries uh, lawsuit against the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, for liable. And we've talked a bit about SPLC and the impact they're having uh, and uh, their naming so-called hate groups has uh, become so broad that they 
have uh, caught in their dragnet organizations that do not fit that profile at all. But they are being relied upon and looked to by lots of mainstream organizations to determine uh, their associations, nonprofit giving and so on. So we'll talk about what the D. James Kennedy Ministries uh, lawsuit might mean, certainly for them, but for others as well. Uh, The Southern Poverty Law Center gaining an influence, uh, but also um, warning signs uh, being raised as well by organizations that uh, wouldn't fall in uh, the conservative camp. So we'll bring that up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I have to tell you, I've decided to take both Thursday and Friday off because, quite frankly, I need a little vacation. And that's precisely what I am going to do Nothing. I'm going to vacate Chun, however you put it. Anyway, so I'm looking forward to that. We had planned to talk with Lee Strobel, whose uh, DVD, The Case for Christ, is now available. I should say the movie is now available in DVD. uh, We will reschedule that conversation. So I look forward to sharing that with you. And then on Friday, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I think James will probably run uh, the weekend show, which is uh, it consists of some of the interviews from this past week. So uh, that's what you can expect on Thursday and Friday. I, I didn't even say what's happening on Thursday. I know what not to expect Thursday, but James will work that all out as. Uh, yeah, you'll hear from uh, Metaxas. I just got that from the horse's mouth also known as James. Well, yesterday, D. James Kennedy Ministries filed a lawsuit in an Alabama federal court against the Southern Poverty Law Center, SPLC, you may see it that way, alleging that the SPLCs illegally trafficked uh, in false and misleading descriptions of the services offered by D. James Kennedy Ministries and committed defamation against D. James Kennedy Ministries arising from the publication and distribution of false information that libels the ministry's reputation, subjects the ministry to disgrace, ridicule, odium, and contempt in the estimation of the public. Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who's a former U.S. Army Delta Forces commander and current Family Research Council executive director in response, said he applauded D. James Kennedy Ministries for its effort to expose the truth about the Southern Poverty Law Center, a discredited organization that's become so controversial that even the Obama Justice Department backed away from the group, along with the FBI and U.S. Army. For any reputable organization to use the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate list is reckless, irresponsible and uninformed. This is an organization that has been linked in federal court to domestic terrorism committed against the Family Research Council by Floyd Corkins with information he obtained from SPLC's so-called hate map. On its website, the SPLC continues to recklessly label people such as the House Majority uh, Whip Steve Scalise, who was recently shot by James Hodgkinson, a Facebook fan of the SPLC. While the Southern Poverty Law Center is an organization that is uh, an attack dog of the left, he goes on to say, they are not a neutral arbiter that is calling balls and strikes. They are on the field playing, pushing an agenda, and anyone who opposes them is slandered and slapped with a hate label. And those labels can, uh, can be very meaningfully applied by organizations who perhaps don't know better. It's, an, it's important, rather, to remember that the Southern Poverty Law Center is the same group that identified Dr. Ben Carson as a hate monger because of his Christian values, only to retract the label later due to public backlash. 
This is wrong. It's not the American way. The Southern Poverty Law Center is inciting hatred against Christians, which has already led to violence. It needs to stop. Boykin goes on to say. Now, again, uh, pointing out that yesterday the uh, D. James Kennedy Ministries has filed a lawsuit uh, in an Alabama federal court against the Southern Poverty Law Center, alleging that uh, they illegally trafficked in false and misleading descriptions of the services offered by the ministry and committed defamation against the ministry arising from a p- the publication of, and distribution of false information. That information was libelous of the ministry's reputation, and it subjects the, uh, the ministry to disgrace, ridicule, odium, not a word you hear often applied in this context, and contempt in the estimation of the public. We're going to follow this lawsuit as it um, moves forward. Of course, you have to... Uh, go through a, a process that can be as simple as whether or not you have standing to uh, to file suit. But in any event, we're going to uh, try to follow this and see where it goes. As you know, we've talked uh, here about several other cases in which reputable conservative organizations have been labeled by the Southern Poverty Law Center as hate groups uh, because there is a, a, a core disagreement on certain values and uh, they're now being called out. Uh, on uh, on those. And as was uh, mentioned by Lieutenant General uh, Boynkin, uh, there was an an incident that took place uh, several years ago uh, in which the Family Research Council was targeted by someone who was motivated by and um, uh, influenced by the Southern Poverty Law Center and their hate map that actually identified locations where individuals who opposed, in this case, the Family Research Council uh, could respond with, uh, I, I suppose, hate uh, in kind, there was a shooting there, and only because of the bravery uh, and the vigilance of a guard in the lobby uh, was it uh, was the individual prevented from uh, going further. This was Floyd Corkins, um, who was uh, apprehended following that event. Well, as I mentioned, uh, I'm going to be uh, gone tomorrow, and I'm essentially taking some time to just literally stop and refresh. Uh, I haven't really had that opportunity. I had. Hoped to uh, following the the sort of long ordeal uh, with Dan's health and trying to keep up all the other responsibilities that just go uh, along with regular life. And I've just felt like I've been burned out for the last uh, little while and uh, was encouraged by several friends. You need to just step away and take some time uh, to, uh, to, I don't know, just rest. And uh, it was interesting yesterday's guest that was precisely the uh, kind of the point of our conversation was what happens when uh, when believers uh, find that they are exhausted. And while taking a couple of days off isn't going to solve every problem, um, it certainly is going to provide an opportunity for me uh, being worn out to recover from the fatigue that uh, that is built up over time. So that's essentially what I'm going to do. I'm planning to spend some time uh, at a friend's home that lives in a kind of a beautiful uh, area which I find is so helpful when you're worn out is to just be surrounded by beauty. I want to have my Bible opened. I want to listen carefully to what God is saying moving forward as I'm entering into what uh, is always a very busy season, the fall and uh, and winter. I'm looking forward to um, a, a women's event at Christmas time, singing with the singing Christmas tree a group that I'm involved in. Undaunted is planning an event in November, and there's there's just a lot coming up. Uh, so I'm looking forward to taking some time off. And I, I mention all of that uh, just to say that there may be others of you listening today who are sort of at, at your end. Uh, you're exhausted. You're worn out. Um, you, you see what's ahead and it, it almost seems impossible. Let me encourage you to take some time to just stop 
and rest, reflect and sit quietly and listen. Um, one of my friends uh, encouraged me to consider that sometimes God allows us to get to this point so that we will come to the point at the end of ourselves and recognize uh, our need of him and to listen more carefully to what he's saying. So that's that's my hope is that over the next couple of days, I'll have that opportunity to just sit quietly and listen without the uh, the daily responsibilities um, that make it very difficult to sit at all, let alone sit and listen. So that's what's coming up for the for me for the next couple of days. And then uh, Eric Metaxas, his program will replace this one tomorrow. You'll have an opportunity to hear from him. And then on Friday, we'll uh, share with you what will be the weekend show. And that features uh, interviews from this week and I believe one from a week before. So uh, looking forward to giving you the opportunity uh, to sit in on that. Then uh, I wanted to mention, since I'm not here um, on Friday, that on Monday of next week, we're going to talk with Charlie uh, DeWas, who is the author of Simple Prayer. Uh, sometimes we we believe that our prayers have to be more um, profound and eloquent than they need to be. God knowing our heart is not impressed by a turn of phrase. We're going to talk about uh, simple prayer and how we can relax. On Tuesday, we'll talk with the uh, with Robert Jeffress. He's the author of A Place Called Heaven, 10 Surprising Truths about your eternal home. We'll talk with uh, Carla Atkins on Wednesday, a, a pair of miracles, a story of autism, faith, and a determined parenting. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Jeff Myers, the secret battle of ideas about God, overcoming the outbreak of five fatal worldviews. Well, I hope you have a great weekend. I'll be back live on Monday. I hope you'll join me. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.